Hey, I'm Dave, and thanks so much for checking out today's message. We're so glad that you are here, and we would love to get connected to you and your family. So one easy way to do that is that you can text the word River Connect to 97000. You can also visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and some of our upcoming events. Lastly, if you'd like to give today to the River Church, you can text the amount that you want to give to 84321, or you can head to our website, click on the Give tab right at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Morning, everyone. If you've got a Bible, let's grab those together and open them up to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 9. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you. Glad you're here uh, with us today. If you don't have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to take out your phone. You can download a Bible app or you can download the River Church app and there's a Bible feature on there and you can follow along, but I always want to encourage you to be able to see the Word of God for yourself, to see the Bible for yourself. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6. We're going to look mostly at verse 7 in just a moment. The prophet Isaiah is speaking here and he is delivering a message that is incredibly important, incredibly encouraging to some people who are in a great time of distress and uncertainty. It was during the time of the reign of a man named Ahaz. King Ahaz was a wicked man. Uh, The Bible has a pretty succinct summary uh, of Ahaz in 2 Chronicles chapter number 28. It simply says this, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so he rebelled against God's authority. He rebelled against God's uh, standards. He led the people into rebellion against God in idolatry and in all types of just terrible things. And so in judgment of that, they are now, the nation, is in danger of being invaded. There's this fear of war And so Ahaz reaches out to other nations, pagan nations that did not believe in or follow God, reached out to them for help. Matter of fact, sent them uh, gifts from the temple, things that belonged to God. So he polluted the worship of God. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 19 uh, even implies that they were, the people were being encouraged to go to mediums and necromancers, meaning go to witches, go into the occult, go into soothsayers or to fortune tellers, go anywhere because we desperately need help. All the while, they are ignoring the one source of help. They are ignoring God. And so in Isaiah chapter 7, in verse number 14, God says to the prophet Isaiah, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the people are in a time of uncertainty, a time of fear, a time of national upheaval, a time of immoral leadership. And they will not be led, and they will not go to God. And so God says, okay, you won't come to me. And this is a beautiful message here that Isaiah gives. I will come to you, God says. 
And so God says, I'll send you a sign. And a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. And that son will be called, his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So jumping over to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, here's further talk, further prophecy, further truths about this coming uh, Savior, this coming child. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. So right there, we see that the virgin will conceive, the virgin will deliver a son, and it will be God with us, and the government will rest securely, safely on his shoulder. He will not buckle under that pressure. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, meaning the wisdom of God, Mighty God. So there's Emmanuel, God with us. He'll be everlasting father, so he'll care for his people in a fatherly, compassionate way. He is the prince of peace. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So the nation looks back and their glory days are in the past. Their best days for them in their minds are not ahead. When the nation began, they, they rallied around uh, the promised land or they came to the promised land and God gave them judges, judges to keep societal order, to point them to the Lord. And if you ever read the book of Judges, it's this spiritual roller coaster ride where they love God and everything is great, they serve the Lord. And then as soon as everything gets great, they forget God and then they plunge into despair, into sin, into depravity, and then they are sold into slavery. And then they are down at the bottom, like many of us, right? Down at the bottom and say, oh God, we, 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 we messed up, we're so sorry, please come and rescue us. And so God would send a judge, and then a judge would come, and then they would go back to serving God. And then there, as everything's going well, they would forget God, and then they would plunge back in. So judge is just this roller coaster ride of that over and over. So finally, the book ends and the people say, we want a king. Like all the other nations, we want a king. And so God gives them a king. His name is Saul. And Saul looked like a king, but he did not have the character of a king. And so for 40 years, Saul was king, and then David became king. And under David's rule, the nation of Israel became a, a global, at that time in the known world, a global power. The wealth was off the charts. They were victorious in battle. And it came back to this King David, who the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. Well, as David grew old, he passed the kingdom on to his son, Solomon. And Solomon reigned for 40 years. So you have 120 years of really just three kings, Saul, David, and then Solomon. Solomon was, you know, the word that comes to mind is his splendor. He was wise. People would travel from all over the globe. The Queen of Sheba even came and was blown away by what she saw in the courts of Solomon. Well, when Solomon passed the mantle of leadership, the throne to his son, Rehoboam, the kingdom split because Rehoboam was a bad king. And so a nation that just 40 years prior had, had been at the pinnacle of power now splits into two. And so when Isaiah is speaking, 
These are people who are longing for the days of David. They, they would hear stories from you know, their parents and their, their grandparents and their great-grandparents. And while well, my grandpa told me and, and his grandpa told him, and man, when David was around, everything was fantastic. And some would have been old enough to even remember those days of David and Solomon and, the, and just the glory of the kingdom. And so when Ahaz is now the king, you have mass idol worship. When Ahaz is king, you have immorality all over the place, and you have a kingdom that is a shell of its former glorious self. And so the people are longing for the return of a Davidic king. Here, the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, of this coming king Verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Meaning, this is not a kingdom that starts out awesome and then just kind of slowly goes downhill from there. This is a kingdom that is eternally awesome. This is a, this is a kingdom that increases in its peace. There will be no end to this. John Calvin said it this way. He said, we see that the mightiest governments of this world are unexpectedly overturned and suddenly fall. How fickle and changeable all the kingdoms under heaven are. We learn from history and from daily examples. This government, the government of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace, this government alone is unchangeable and eternal. Here's, I'll just give you a preview of where we're headed at the end of this passage of Scripture. The kingdom that Jesus came and established is an eternal kingdom, and Jesus Christ sits securely, firmly on the throne, never to be removed. And at a time for these people who had seen their kingdom split, they had seen just things fall apart They needed to be reminded that there was a secure and eternal king that God had promised. Even though they had not asked God for a sign, God said, I'll give you a sign. And that sign is going to point to an eternal king that is securely going to be seated on the throne. Look at verse 7. Continues with the prophecies and the description. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now hold your spot in Isaiah and turn back to the left to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter number 7. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see God's covenant, and covenant is an agreement, it's a promise, it's a vow. So God's covenant with David. So sometimes in a more um, 
you know, educational sense, or sometimes you'll see it called the Davidic covenant. So don't be freaked out by that. It's just David's covenant or God's covenant, God's covenantal agreement with David. Look at verse number 16. So Solomon is going to come be king, but this is God's promise to David. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes this promise. Now here's something we just need to settle right here. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. When God makes a promise, that is a sure thing. My favorite promise that God makes is that he says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Like I am even moved just to think about that, that the Lord has promised, I'll never leave you, I'll never bail on you, and I'll never forsake you. When I need to be forsaken, when I'm an idiot, which is the majority of the time, the Lord says, even in those moments, I will not forsake you. And that's the faithfulness, the kindness, the commitment of the Lord. But God makes this covenant with David, and he says to David, your house and your kingdom, your throne, will be established forever. So Solomon comes to the throne, and then after 40 years, he passes it to Rehoboam, and now the kingdom splits. And so there's some question, what about this promise? What about the covenant with David? You can leave 2 Samuel, but keep holding your spot in Isaiah, and go to the New Testament to Matthew chapter number 1. Matthew chapter number one. Now, oftentimes when we come to these portions of Scripture, we are tempted and many times to run away from genealogies. Um, Maybe it's boring to you. I would say, and a lot of times it's names that are difficult, challenging to pronounce. But I want you to just see Matthew chapter one and verse one. Matthew writes, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look at this title here, the son of David. Now, Matthew's target audience with his gospel are the Jews. He wants the the Jewish people, he wants them to understand that Jesus is the long-expected Messiah. And so, as we have seen over the last few weeks, he'll use... Uh, as it is written, that phrase, or he'll use the word fulfilled, meaning he's looking back into the Old Testament saying, remember when Isaiah said this, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Remember when the prophet said this, Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Remember when Micah the prophet said this, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And so he begins his gospel with a genealogy that declares Jesus is a rightful, the rightful heir to the throne of David. Luke even does this as well. Go to the Gospel of Luke, a little bit further to the right. Luke chapter number one. Luke chapter number one and verse 32 The angel, Gabriel, is sent to Mary. 
and delivers the news that she's going to be that virgin that will conceive and bear a son. She becomes a part of God's prophetic plan that Isaiah talked about all the way those hundreds of years prior. Look at verse number uh, 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You call his name Jesus. He'll be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What do we see there? You can go back to Isaiah now. We see Matthew declaring Jesus is the fulfillment of this promised Messiah, the Christ. Luke is declaring, hey, his kingdom, he is going to sit securely on the throne. He is the descendant of David. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to David that we saw back in 2 Samuel chapter number 7. What are, what's the, the point of that, that whole passage? When God makes a promise, God fulfills it. He is faithful to that. Here's, here's the beautiful thing. God makes covenants. He makes agreements. Just a little bit ago, we took the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, Paul quoting Jesus, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant was a covenant that condemned us under the law. The new covenant is that Jesus came and fulfilled the righteous standards of God's law. He lived a perfect life, and as the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, he laid down his life on the cross of Calvary and took the penalty for sin that sinners deserve, that sinners like you and I deserve to take. Jesus took it upon himself, and he died, he was buried, he rose again, and he offers to us this new covenant. And what we see in Isaiah chapter number 9, and this ties this in together, is the last passage. So with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, and then Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Who's doing this whole thing? God is doing it. God is the one orchestrating all of these things. Zeal means passion, or it means excitement. It means to be fervent about something. It's not a flash in the pan. Zeal is this this long excitement in one direction. Uh, For me, when when I thought about zeal, this is a terrible illustration, but I thought, man, I was at about midnight last night. I couldn't fall asleep because I was way too zealous about the lion's. And so at about one in the morning, I thought, I have to get up at five. It's just a game. No, but it's not just a game. Those losers missed that call. No, it's a game. You have more important things tomorrow. And so I had to settle some things in my own heart, right? What the Bible is saying here is that God is zealous, meaning passionate, excited, fervent. Authorial intent, meaning what did the author mean to say and when did he say it? The nation is afraid. Things are uncertain. 
there's a fear of the future. Some of you may feel that right now. In Isaiah's time, the people didn't know what was going to happen. The glory days had passed them by, and here they are, uncertain about whether they're going to be invaded. They're going to necromancers and fortune tellers. They're getting into all this demonic stuff, trying to figure out the future. And and the prophet just says, okay, God sends him and Isaiah speak. Okay, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And the sign is this, there is coming a king and the government will sit securely on his shoulders and he will be the wonderful counselor. He will be mighty God. He will be the everlasting father. He will be the prince of peace. And when he sits on the throne, his kingdom is gonna be a kingdom that continues forevermore. It is a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. And who is doing this? You can be certain because God is doing this. No human will or force is making this happen. God is doing this. And he is zealous. He is passionate. He is fervent about doing this. Hold your spot in Isaiah 9 and go over to Isaiah 53. And we begin to see these little prophetic glimpses in Isaiah of the plan of God unfolding. And we see it in the birth of Christ. We see the fulfillment of what God said he would do. He wasn't joking when he said a virgin will conceive. He wasn't joking that it was going to be a child. He wasn't joking about where he would be born. It wasn't, mytholo- it wasn't mythological. He was saying this is what's going to happen. You can, you can see these things. And so Matthew says, man, he's born of a virgin. And here he is laying in a manger. This is to fulfill what the prophet said. Isaiah chapter 53 speaks now of that same child, but grown. Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is why people couldn't understand Jesus. Because they were expecting a king, and a king came. They were expecting a royal announcement, but they they didn't listen to the angel's announcement to the shepherds, and then the shepherds spreading the message. So they thought this couldn't possibly be the king. Verse 3 continues, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's doing that? This is the Lord. 
Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, I want you to see this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This is the the divine plan of God that the king would be born to a virgin. The king would be laid in a manger. The king would live a life in obscurity. The king would come onto the scene. And people would say, I thought he was going to take David's throne. I thought he was going to restore us back to the glory days of David and Solomon. And they wanted to take him by force and make him a earthly king Jesus, even the night he was betrayed, the night he was taken to trial, stood before Pilate. And Pilate says, are you a king? And, Pilate, and, and Jesus says to Pilate there in the Gospel of John, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would rise up and fight for it. But my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus does say, yes, I'm a king. But my kingdom is different than the way people want this kingdom to be. And the king, rather than sending out minions to die for him in mass in armies, the king goes and dies. And it was all by a divine design. It was all the zeal of the Lord doing this. Even Jesus, you see in his ministry, in his earthly life, he'll talk about I I am here to do the will of my Father. And just paraphrasing it, Jesus says, I'm doing what my Father tells me to do. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord, God's excitement, God's passion was to make this happen, was to send his only begotten Son to pay a debt that his Son certainly did not owe. But what did the Son do? Hebrews 12, 2 says of Jesus, when we we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. I used to think the joy was the cross, but I, I don't think that's the whole thing. I think the cross was part of that, but who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despised the shame and is now set at the right hand of the throne of the Father. What was the joy? The joy was honoring his father and being obedient to death. And what did his death do? His death brings many sons and daughters to glory. It's the zeal of the Lord. And the zeal of the Lord was this, I'm going to make a way for rebellious sinners to be saved. I'm going to make a way for men and women who have rebelled against the holy standards of God to be rescued. And the way that I'm going to do that is going to shock people. It's going to be scandalous. It's going to be crazy. 
I'm going to send my own son, God in the flesh, and people are going to reject him. People are going to despise him. People are going to ignore him. People are going to look at him and say, oh, he's dying. He must be punished by God. He must have done something wrong. Not knowing that it was the will of the Lord that God was crushing his only begotten son for sinners. And he's a king. And you look at the scope of the story of the Bible, and I, I love just seeing the, the, the vast, epic story, the narrative that God is still in the process of telling. Here, God creates everything. We have fellowship with God, and we sin against God. And then the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to a coming Messiah. The hope of a Christ. The hope of a Savior. The hope of a king, the hope of a prophet, the hope of someone who will bring some eternal stability. And then Jesus comes and the prophet looks at him and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because the king was standing there. And the king came and brought in his kingdom. And here we are on this side of the narrative looking back. And all of the New Testament is looking back to the Christ. All of the Old Testament was looking forward to the Christ. Here we are looking back at the Christ saying, God made good on his promise to David. God made good on his promise to Abraham. God made good on his covenant. And guess what? Here we are in the new covenant. And God will make good on his promise. He sent his son for us. And both ends of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation, have this this little bookend of God and man in perfect harmony. And Revelation ends with God and man in perfect harmony. How's that possible? By Christ. By Christ. And so that's why we celebrate Jesus and that's why we sing about Jesus and that's why we take the Lord's Supper, the, the, the cup symbolic of his shed blood, the cracker symbolic of his broken body. We take that because we're remembering what Jesus did and how he purchased our pardon. And by repenting of our sins, we become part of the kingdom of God. Right now, invisible in us, but one day to be visible. That's the beautiful story of the Bible. That's the beautiful story of grace. Maybe you're sitting here and you've never heard that before. Maybe you thought it was all haphazard. Maybe you thought God was just kind of winging it. But God is passionate, excited, and zealous and sent his only son so you could be saved. So I could be saved. God doesn't do that reluctantly. God doesn't do that with any hesitation. The zeal of the Lord will do this. And he did. That's the gospel. Your response, my response, is to turn from our sin 
and turn to Jesus as Lord. It's the only reasonable response. Paul says it in Romans 12. The only reasonable response to what God has done is to present our whole lives as a living sacrifice. That's that's the only reasonable response to the gospel. If you have any less response than that, um, it's not reasonable. It's ridiculous. The only reasonable response to encountering the true gospel is total surrender of our lives because God has this epic, awesome plan that he's unfolding and he's inviting us to just be part of it. The only reasonable response is to surrender all of our lives to him. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Maybe you're religious. Maybe you prayed a prayer when you were a kid, got baptized, joined the church, all kinds of of good things. But right here, right now, you're recognizing on this last day of the year that you've not fully surrendered your life to Jesus. You have not turned from sin and declared him as Lord of your life. I think if you're here, I can assume for a lot of you, you want Jesus as Savior. No one, when they understand the true nature of hell, says, oh, I'll go there, it'll be fine. The idea of wanting Jesus as Savior makes a whole lot of sense, but we must have Jesus as Lord to have him as Savior. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you can call out to him right now, and you can be saved. Let's pray together.